go into our second talk. The result of sin, fear, shame, and the masks we wear. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. Briefly reviewing, what is sin? Well, it is transgression of the law. What law? The protocols of love upon which God designed the universe to operate. And what happens to the sinner when we deviate from the law of love, take advantage of another person, exploit another human being, cheat, lie, steal, do something that is a violation of love? What happens in the one who violates? Fear. Fear of rejection. Fear of punishment. Fear of abandonment. Fear of being um, assaulted. Fear of being injured with subsequent acts to protect self, to hide self. Let's get some fig leaves and cover our nakedness. Lying, blaming, externalizing. It wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me. Seeking to avoid those we've wronged or anyone who knows about the wrong we've done or to destroy those who know because those who live in darkness don't want to come into the light. They don't want the truth to come in because we're living in guilt. We're living in shame. We're afraid no one can love us if they know what we've done. And so we put on our masks. We don't come to church and say, hey guys, I was struggling and I relapsed this week. I thought I had the porn addiction in, in control, but I, but I viewed porn again this week. Your pastor doesn't come to church and say that. But the data shows that over 50% of pastors view porn monthly. Why? Because at most churches, if a pastor came and said, hey, I, I'm struggling, guys. I need your prayer. I need your help. I've got problems in my life. Viewed porn again this week, the church would draw around with encouragement and support, lift them up. <laughs> or do they hide and wear their social masks because they fear what's likely to happen? And so the systems of religion and social, social structure often reinforce the fear-based, shame-based approach to life rather than a healing, grace approach to life. Are there laws involved in the consequences of deviating from God's line law? In other words, where does the fear, where does the guilt, where does the shame come from? Is it some external application or is it an internal consequence you can't avoid? After Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. They were afraid. They were guilt-ridden. They were ashamed. How did God respond? Adam, where are you? I have no clue. Stop hiding. I'm not playing hide-and-seek. No, God knew. This was not something out of God's awareness. He didn't say, where are you, because I don't know. He was showing grace. Hey, Adam, I don't want to startle you. I don't want to frighten you. And notice this question to Adam, because Adam said, hey, I ran and hid because I was afraid because I was naked. And God responds with, who told you 
You were naked. Where did you get that information? Where did you come to that perspective? When did you come to feel exposed? In other words, and think about who, what the options to that question are. Well, I heard it on CNN. <laughs> no, no, the, the, the options are very limited at this point. And so the implication in the question is, Adam, did you hear me say that? Or you didn't hear it from me. I'm not the one condemning you, Adam. I'm not the one pointing out faults. I'm not the one criticizing. That's your own conscience. That's what's happened because you've transgressed my design law. You've damaged yourself. You've introduced a new element of fear, of guilt, of shame. That's not coming from me, Adam. And what did Adam do to try to deal with it? We know that the only solution for Adam was God. And so did Adam instantly run to God for help? No, he ran and hid from God and tried to fix the problem himself with his fig leaf garments and so forth. How well did that work? And how many of us today still sew the fig leaf garments of various kinds, whether social, whether religious, some mechanism to hide us from God, covering us with various garments or, or applications of various liquids and so forth to, to make sure when the Father looks at us, He can't see us? Was God His enemy? No. No. God is not, was not his enemy in Eden, and God is not our enemy today. Adam had only one place to go for healing and salvation, and that was to God. We have only one place to go for healing and salvation, and that is to God. And it is the devil's distortion and the consequence of sin that caused us to misperceive God and believe the fear and the shame and the internal guilt that we get, no one could love me if they knew me. And therefore, we put on our masks, and that can include our religious masks. So I got baptized in the right way, I go to church on the right day, eat the right foods, I dress in the right clothes, and I do all the right things. And if I do that, then these garments will cover me, and when I present them to the Lord, I will be covered in those garments, and the Lord will say, acceptable. But what we're really doing is we're still afraid of him because if he really knew me, he wouldn't love me. And it's all based on the lie that was believed in Eden. What is needed to fix this condition? Truth. Truth on all layers. Truth about the actual problem. What's the problem that needs fixing? Truth about God and who he is. Truth about God's design laws. And the application of love. The application of truth and love. I don't know if any of you have read Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace, but there's a story in here I want to share with you that I think illustrates this quite powerfully. It's on page 49. A young girl grows up in the cherry orchard just above Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents, a, a bit old-fashioned, tend to overreact to her nose ring, the music she listens to, the length of her skirts. 
They ground her a few times and she seized inside. I hate you, she screams at her father when he knocks on the door of her room after an argument. And that night, she acts on a plan she has mentally rehearsed scores of times. She runs away. She has visited Detroit only once before on a bus trip with her church group to watch a Tigers play. Because newspapers in Traverse City report in lurid detail the gangs, the drugs, the violence in downtown Detroit, she concludes that is probably the last place her parents will ever look for her. California, maybe. Florida, but not Detroit. Her second day there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride, buys her lunch, arranges a place for her to stay. He gives her some pills that makes her feel better than she's ever felt before. She was right all along. She decides her parents were keeping her from all the fun. The good life continues for a month, two months, a year. The man with the big car, she calls him boss, teaches her a few things that men like. Since she's underage, men pay a premium for her. She lives in a penthouse and orders room service whenever she wants. She, occasionally she thinks of the folks back home, but their lives seem so boring and provincial that she can hardly believe she grew up in that place. She has a brief scare when she sees her picture printed on the back of a milk carton and the headlines reading, have you seen this child? But by now, she has blonde hair. And with all the makeup and body-piercing jewelry she wears, nobody would mistake her for a child. Besides, most of her friends are runaways and nobody squeals in Detroit. After a year, the first sallow signs of illness appear. And it amazes her how fast the boss turns mean. These days, we can't mess around, he growls, and before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She still turns a couple of tricks a night, but they don't pay much, and all the money goes to support her abbot. When winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on metal grates outside big department stores. Sleeping is the wrong word. A teenage girl at night in downtown Detroit can never relax her guard. Dark bands circle her eyes. Her cough worsens. One night, as she lies awake, listening for footsteps, all of a sudden, everything about her life looks different. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels like a little girl, lost in a cold and frightening city. She begins to whimper. Her pockets are empty, and she's hungry. She needs a fix. She pulls her legs tight underneath her and shivers under the newspaper she piled atop her coat. Something jolts a synapse of memory, and a single image fills her mind of May in Traverse City when a million cherry trees bloom at once and her golden retriever dashing through the rows and rows of blossomy trees in chase of a tennis ball. God, why did I leave, she tells herself. And pain stabs at her heart. My dog back home eats better than I do now. She's sobbing, and she knows in a flash that more than anything else in the world, she wants to go home. Three straight phone calls, three straight connections with the answering machine. She hangs up without leaving a message after the first two, but the third time she says, Dad, Mom, it's me. I, I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way, and 
and it'll get, get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay on the bus until it hits Canada. It takes about seven hours for the bus to make all the stops between Detroit and Traverse City. And during that time, she realizes the flaws in her plan. What if her parents are out of town and miss the message? Shouldn't she have waited another day or, or so until she could talk to them? And even if they're home, they probably wrote her off as dead long ago. She should have given them some time to overcome the shock. Her thoughts bounce back and forth between those worries and the speech she is preparing for her father. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine. Dad, can you forgive me? She says the words over and over, her thoughts, her throat tight, tightening as she rehearses them. She hasn't apologized to anyone in years. The bus has been driving with lights on since Bay City. Tiny snowflakes hit the pavement, rubbed worn by thousands of tires and the asphalt steams. She's forgotten how dark it gets out at night out here. A deer darts across the road and the bus swerves. Every so often a billboard, a sign posting the mileage to Traverse City. Oh God. When the bus finally rolls into the station, its air brakes hissing in protest. The driver announces in a crackly voice over the microphone, 15 minutes, folks, that's all we've got here. 15 minutes to decide her life. She checks herself in a compact mirror, smooths her hair, licks the lipstick off her teeth. She looks at the tobacco stains on her fingertips and wonders if her parents will notice, if they're there. She walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect. Not one of the thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepares her for what she sees. There in the concrete walls and plastic chairs, bus terminal of Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 brothers and sisters and great aunts and great uncles and cousins and grandmother and a great grandmother to boot. They're all wearing goofy party hats and blowing noise makers and taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a computer-generated banner that reads, Welcome Home. Out of the crowd of well-wishers, breaks her dad. She, start, she stares out through the tears, quivering in her eyes like hot mercury, begins her memorized speech. Dad, I'm sorry, I know. He interrupts, hush, child. We've got no time for that. No time for apologies. You'll be late to the party. A banquet's waiting for you at home. It's not just cognitive, knowing the facts. It's experiential. Who we are in heart and character. We must know God, not as a fact, but as a real being whom we love and trust. Thus, Christian witness must include loving people, grace compassion along with the truth. It's time for a roundtable discussion.